Hey everyone, it's Natalia Reagan for Star Talk All Stars. I am a primatologist and co-founder of the anthropology nonprofit Boaz Network. And here joining me is Tim Alexander, comedian extraordinaire. Hello. And today we're going to talk about a hot button subject that's not going to cool down anytime soon climate change. What we want to talk about is how climate change has been caused by humans and affected humans and also other species out there. And joining us in studio today, we have both uh, biological anthropologist Dr. Todd Disatel of New York University. Hey, Natalia. Hey. <laughs> and Dr. Ian Tattershall, paleoanthropologist at the American Museum of Natural History and author of The Natural History of Wine. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me, guys. So, uh, climate change. Ah, it's uh, obviously on everybody's lips. And um, we want to talk a little bit about how uh, climate change is something that is not new to the world. It's, there's been <laughs> multiple uh, events of, of climate changing. But what makes this different? Who well, we have a very good uh, record of climate change that goes really back as far as the, uh, the human family goes or the human ancestry goes. And it's very clear that we've always lived in a world of unsettled environments. And environments have regularly changed on, uh, on, on, on a quite, quite short-term uh, basis. But it's never really mattered before. Uh, because for most of our evolution, we've been hunter-gatherers who could just move around. If the shoreline uh, moved inland, uh, our ancestors could just move right there along with it, and it wouldn't perturb their way of life too much. Now we have this enormous amount of infrastructure which we've created and installed along the, uh, the seaboards, and which really is threatened by the latest uh, ra um, uh, round of uh, sea level rise due to climate change. So we've kind of painted us into a corner with our advancements as a civilization, in a way. That's exactly right. We have, uh, we've established a way of life that depends on a stable geography. And a stable geography is what we have not had in the past. Yeah. It would be nice if we could just pick up, you know, take kids, put them in the station wagon and just, you know, go somewhere and be like, oh, I'm going to sit down roots here and, you know, pick some berries, some shrubs, whatevs. Yeah. Not quite that easy. Right? No, no. What about you, Todd? Um, we're also contributing ourselves to it, which is something that's been very different than in the past. Um, in the past, the Earth has actually been transformed by different kinds of life forms, so it's not unheard of for a species or a group of organisms to actually change the Earth, even change its geology and its geography. Like cows and farts that we oftentimes or, hear about. Or, uh, you know, <laughs> having bacteria um, sure. and getting an atmosphere, getting oxygen from them. Um, but what we're now pouring into the atmosphere is uh, accelerating what's probably a natural trend. And uh, I worry about a tipping point. And once we reach certain tipping points, we're going to see rapidly accelerated um, climate change. Yeah, I, we, I definitely want to go down that, that, that path because that's really what we want to talk about today. But are there other, other animals besides bacteria that have had like a major impact? Uh, other animals besides ourselves and bacteria? have a major impact on climate that we can actually see? Um, I would say in some regions, um, you know, like the, the type of damage you see elephants do in mm -hmm. some regions oh, when they become overpopulated and deer. more or less deforced. Deer here on the east, well, actually nationwide, but on the east coast. 
Um, the lack of predators in some regions causing an entire ecological change, which actually changes the courses of rivers and all sorts of Absolutely, things. Absolutely, yeah. Because yeah. Beaver. Uh, beaver too, yeah. That, that's a big one. And uh, an interesting one is, is uh, gorillas, as a matter of fact. You know, we're all familiar with the gorilla display where uh, uh, males <laughs> charge around beating their chest, tearing up lumps of vegetation uh, around them. And what this is actually doing, it's not just social display. In fact, what's it doing is returning the uh, vegetation to a lower level of succession so that the plants will push out new shoots, which is what the, uh, the gorillas like to eat. See, see, no anger management classes for those guys. We want to, we want to keep them mad, keep them pissed off. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, no, it's just even I studied spider <laughs> monkeys and, and, you know, them as seed dispersers is a, is a big deal. They actually eat the fruit. And when they defecate, when they take their dump, they basically redistribute those seeds. And hopefully, knock on wood, we get more spondius growing in different places, which they love to eat. So the cycle continues. Yeah, I, where else would you get your coffee beans from? Exactly. Not, not monkeys butts. <laughs> Monkey butt coffee. I'm going to trademark that as soon as yeah, I leave. Yeah, I was going to say the same yeah. thing. Like, that's a good brand, actually. <laughs> exactly. Uh, get, let's get on that, guys. Uh, but but we, we've talked about how humans have, have been a part of affecting uh, the climate. How are we going to suffer, aside from our cities, but things like, for instance, pathogens that might not be, um, well, spread in North America or, or coming north because it, as, as, as temperatures are rising, Mosquitoes carrying these pathogens are well, affecting us. That, that's really scary. I, I actually teach a course on emerging diseases. And we're going to be watching with just, again, tipping points, just a few degrees of change in winter temperatures and stuff can allow certain species to survive through all year. And so I think, I predict we're going to watch chukungunya and dengue and Zika um, creep northward, so out of the Florida Keys, out of the Miami area, eventually into Georgia and Virginia. And mm. I mean, there was a time when uh, New York was practically uninhabitable because it was a malarial yellow fever swamp. Tens of thousands wow. of people yeah. died in Philadelphia and New York from yellow fever. Um, and malaria and all of those things. And those could reemerge here um, the fur further north into the United States than they are. No longer just a borderlands issue with just a few degrees change. And this is another reason why it's terrifying that we're cutting any sort of funding to medical research at this time because we need it now more than ever, especially with obviously these pathogens coming further north. But also I, I, I read recently that even frozen, perhaps as ice sheets are melting, there could potentially be bacteria in there that are waking up. And that, that right there is a great movie. Um, and that's, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> let's well, get Michael Bay on that. Th think of the tens of thousands of bodies buried in the gulags permafrost that had I think about that all the time, Todd. I can't stop. And now those being unearthed. It, Oof. it already feels like like a like a horrible swamp. When you go in the subway, it already like it, it, the next month or two is just going to be a nightmare. To think it's going to be much much worse just by a couple of degrees changing. That's. I'm going to move to Maine. Right. <laughs> just go further north. But no, I mean, and just as of course with the Arctic ice melting at at a rapid level. Now we're seeing sea levels rising and, and, and the acidification of, of the oceans. How will that affect, you think, people living in areas, obviously, the South Pacific? Uh, do you know anything about that? Oh, there is a tremendous problem in uh, some atolls, particularly in the South uh, Pacific, that 
actually become uh, inundated uh, on when the weather is bad, if they have a typhoon or something that moves the sea around, that they're in risk of uh, total inundation of some of the islets in the chain. And so uh, every, every inch the sea level goes up, the greater the risk becomes. And it's not only uh, just the uh, the obvious damage that you get from uh, from the sea level rise of that kind. It's also the uh, the salination of the uh, of the water tables. So if you're living on an island that is is maybe it's 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 uh, 20 25 feet above uh, sea level, Jeez. that'll get you by uh, most of the time. But if the water that you're pumping up from it uh, to sustain you is uh, is uh, uh, brackish or uh, salty, uh, you're in big trouble. Hmm. Yeah. And if we look historically, I mean, there's been over 100 meter differences in sea levels in cold versus warm phases um, of, you know, on the planet. And if we dump, I mean, we could see sea levels. I mean, we're worried about inches or and centimeters but i mean historically in the pleistocene in the last several um, million years sea levels have gone up and down over a hundred meters so i mean we're talking (laughs) you know the 22nd floor being underwater yeah and here we are (laughs) folks at home we are in uh, lower manhattan on the 22nd floor so yeah that that's uh, that's terrifying um and in terms of um how humans can, I don't know, uh, sort of sustain or, 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 or avoid that tipping point. What, what would you advise them to do other than just, you know, drive their car less, uh, maybe eat food from a local source? What, what would be, be your um, advice? Well, I think the clear advice is to reduce the amount of carbon and other uh, greenhouse gases that are being pumped into the, uh, the, the atmosphere every day. And the, the numbers are just uh, mind-boggling. Um, really, if you look at the pattern of climate change in the immediate past, you would be predicting that we would be about ready to go into, uh, into another ice age. And in the ice ages, the ice caps build up, uh, water gets sequestered from the sea, sea levels go down, more land is exposed along the edge of the uh, continents. And from the point of view of sea level, this is not going to be a, a problem uh, if, the, uh, if the climate gets colder. Um, but right now, there's absolutely no sign of this. And the signs are that the planet is warming and it's warming at an alarming rate. And although it's very, always very difficult to, to pinpoint a specific cause for a specific observation that you may make, we do know that what you, pre- what you would predict from what we're doing in terms of filling up the atmosphere with uh, greenhouse gases, this is the effect that that has. And since we know we're doing a lot of it that we don't have to do, if we want to protect the enormous investment that we have in infrastructure that might be inundated, then we really need to do something about that. And we also need to, if you look at a map of all the major urban centers and cities, I mean, we really are coastally oriented. And with globalization, with almost all of that freight moving by ship, people naturally migrate to coastlines. And so um, that's going to doubly affect us because we are so concentrated in the areas directly most at risk 
you know, the best ports have nice anchorage and then the city's just right there. You don't have to climb a mountain to get to it. But yep. all of those cities are now at risk. Now, that's an excellent point. Uh, being from Los Angeles, now living in New York, I, I know what it's like to just be kind of in constant fear of, oh, gosh, when's the next? I mean, L.A. Don't, doesn't have hurricanes. But, of course, Sandy, a few years back, you know, really did quite a lot of damage to New York. Uh, and coming back from that, I just it's costing um, millions, if not billions of dollars. What would you say to somebody who says that it, it, but it was so cold last winter? The idea that, that weather is not climate, how would you explain that to somebody who may be on the fence about climate change? Well, weather has always uh, uh, fluctuated. And what you have to do is try to, to figure out the long-term signal and to separate it from uh, local fluctuations. And there does seem to be an alarming uh, signal going on. I remember the days when every winter the uh, Hudson River uh, down here used to block up with ice flows. Mm. You could practically walk from New York to New Jersey on the ice wow. uh, every, every winter just with the ice that came down, floating down from the north, clogging up the river. And we haven't seen that. We haven't seen that for 20 years, maybe 25 years by now. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, again, with these fluctuations, it's like going to a casino, you know, and having a, a short-term run on the cards. But ultimately, that casino's oh. got an edge on you. That's the trend. So no matter what you do in blackjack or the slots or whatever, the trend is towards the casino. And that's yeah. what we're seeing here. Even though you're going to have a lucky night or a lucky week or just one short lucky streak over the course of uh, time, you're going to lose. Yeah, that's very well said. And we just have to remember that what we have to react to is what's happening right now. You know, if we're going to protect what we have created with uh, great uh, sweat and toil over the last uh, couple of hundred years, it's going to be absolutely necessary to do something to protect that infrastructure. And we need to do everything that we can. Even if there's got to be a reversal in 100 years, it doesn't really matter if our lives are completely disrupted in the meantime. Hmm. No, it's worth it. I'm going to, number one, I'm totally stealing that, that, uh, that analogy about the, uh, the, the cards. That's a, that's, a great, that's a great way to understand that. Uh, and then it seems like it sounds like uh, like the the argument to be made here is is really interesting because it's like it's not too often that you hear really like economical argument being made about like why this is this is going to matter you know like this is such a politically divisive mm-hmm. uh, topic and and frequently people who are uh, who are kind of against climate change somehow like it's like it's something you can be against are kind of like they're looking at their business interests like this is super in their business but if you look at the military and the large corporations they're all Mm. really thinking about this carefully they just are careful how they put that forth politically Mm. but they're all researching it they're trying to figure out ways they're trying to protect their interests Hmm. yeah it's short-term versus long-term goals and and achievements i mean Mm -hmm. clearly it's going going for the the long haul you know when you're going to take care of your environment and and really think about what you're putting into the environment yeah but people have a very short-term ten, uh, tendency you know they, they 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 tend to look at immediate problems as something going on right now uh what do we do about it how can we adjust it and uh uh longer term trends if it's not threatening you tomorrow then maybe we deal with tomorrow's 
problems today, yeah. but not next week's problems today, not next month's problems today. We'll wait and react to those when they come. <laughs> and then by the time they come, it's often too late. It's that oh shit moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I, always, I always used to think that it's almost that whole idea of reproductive success or, you know, the idea that we haven't really achieved reproductive success until you've become a grandparent essentially <laughs> and now that our grandchildren are, are directly at risk of not surviving into the future because of what's going on in, in the world we're you know we're now having to take stock of of what can we do to change this reverse this yeah we need to we need ourselves. to adjust our perspectives yeah absolutely and a message to my boys, put off those grandchildren for a while, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think they're good. I think, yeah. Um, well, uh, do you want to do maybe one quick cosmic query? Yeah. Well, you know, I, um, the question that I, I find most interesting here, the, the, from C Cody Mathis. Uh, He's a Patreon patron, by the way. Thank you very much, yeah, Cody. <laughs> that, this is great. Uh, just, what American wildlife, um, what other American wildlife may be negatively impacted and driven to extinction by the effects of climate change. Who do you see is really kind of, I guess, on the brink right now? Um, have, um, well, there's going to be a lot of, as, again, the temperature shifts, that's going to shift where different kinds of plants, the primary source of food mm -hmm. for a lot of these things, eat. So I think things that are coastal, are going to be the ones more more directly impacted. But because climate change and warming puts more energy into the atmosphere, ironically, we can have worse blizzards and more snowfall and things like that. So basically nationwide, I think it's going to affect a lot. Uh, the most immediately affected one are going to be the insects, though, because they're the ones that are most directly tied and sort of a very low mm -hmm. level mm -hmm. in the trophic mm -hmm. pyramid. So I think we're going to see a lot of insects shift, yeah. get booted out by other insects, outcompeted by other insects. Ian? And we have to remember that we live in a uh, environment where uh, the fauna and the flora have been under siege for quite a long time. Yeah. I mean, humans have made extraordinary difficulties for uh, animals trying to live in their habitats as they uh, uh, evolved to do. And what we've done is we've basically selected out the ones that were not very well uh, suited to absorb the kind of stresses that have been thrown yeah. at them. Yeah. And so, in a sense, the, uh, the, uh, the fauna has already been sort of, uh, what would the opposite of winterize? It's been sort of summarized. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't know what the best word would be. I'll, I'll take it. Okay. Uh, no, but that, that's, that's a great question, and, and thank you, Cody. But we're going to have to wrap up this portion of Star Talk All-Stars, but stay tuned. We're going to talk about what other animals and species have been affected by climate change. Welcome back to Star Talk All-Stars. I'm your host, primatologist Natalia Reagan, here with my comedian co-host, Tim Alexander, Hello. and paleoanthropologist... Ian, Dr. Ian Tattersall of the American Museum of Natural History, also the author of The Natural History of Wine, and biological anthropologist Dr. Todd Disatel of New York University. Today we're talking about climate change and, uh, well, how humans are causing it, being affected by it, and also how other species are faring as well in the past and the present. But right now I have a question for Ian because he has this great book called uh, The Natural History of Wine, and I want to know how actual the growing of, of wine grapes is being affected by climate change. 
Oh, it's being very greatly affected by uh, climate change. Great, greatly affected? You know, greatly. <laughs> and uh, the thing is that, that you know, uh, basically winemaking starts as an agricultural um, endeavor. And farmers, of course, are always complaining about the weather. But now they have a lot more to complain about than, uh, than they used to. And with climate change, not only uh, are the seasons becoming less predictable, but in, uh, in some cases, uh, uh, average temperatures are warming up and uh, making it difficult to grow uh, grape varieties that are, uh, that are sensitive to particular ranges in, in average temperature. But there is good uh, news on the horizon. It used to be that uh, in southern England, uh, you really couldn't grow grapes. You really could not uh, grow grapes uh, that would compete with the kind of grapes they could grow upon. It was too rainy. It was too cold. Uh, the grapes wouldn't ripen properly. They got mildew. It was very terrible. Um, but over the last 20 years, uh, a industry producing sparkling wine has become well established in the south of England. And in fact, one of them... Uh, one of uh, the English uh, sparkling wines just won an international award against oh. all the competition from Champagne. Whoa! So it's not all one way. Get so it. they're they're Get benefiting the from French. this, this right. climate change. Yeah. <laughs> wow! Do you have a particular favorite wine, just for the listeners at home? Well, my 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 favorite one. If I could only drink one wine, uh, it would have to be a, a white wine from uh, from Burgundy. Hmm. And uh, Burgundy is uh, in central central part of France, as as you know, and um, it is uh, being somewhat affected by climate change. Although the preferred variety for the white ones, the Chardonnay, mm -hmm. is actually quite tolerant oh. of temperatures. Uh, Pinot Noir, on the other hand, which is their red grape down there, is is much um, more difficult to grow. Very sensitive, yeah. fussy, fussy little grape. Well, that that's very interesting because again, we're this is the section where we talk about other species that are being affected, and and grapes are you know they're plants, they're they're part of our. I'm worried world. about hops. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, how is beer being affected by climate change? Well, so, you know, there's this famous, the 48th parallel is where they grow lots of different hops. Um, For the listeners at home, where is the 48th parallel? Well, it runs through Oregon and Washington and around um, I'm the world. I'm going to assume that's a longitude or latitude yeah. type thing. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm back. <laughs> I'm back. And... Um, <laughs> There's lots of different varieties of hops that are grown there, especially for IPAs and other things. But as climate change shifts, mm -hmm. those growing regions are going to shift. But again, we might open up new places mm -hmm. um, to grow them that you weren't able to grow yeah. them before. Like and the Arctic. There's, an, there's another aspect here, too, is that wine is a product of a place, right? And you, you usually grow the grapes in the same place that you make the wine. Um, in beer, you assembling many, many different ingredients. You've got your barley, and of course, and you've got your hops. And the hops can come from a long way away. Mm. Mm. So maybe the individual beers are less affected by the climate change in any particular one place than a, a winery would be. Oh, okay. Interesting. But there's an effect nonetheless. Yes. Uh, so but we want to also talk about how we've seen climate change affect species in the past. And since both of you uh, have studied paleoanthropology extensively, we would love to talk about wh how, what have you seen in terms of, you know, the, any sort of archaeological finds, genetic markers. Um, talk to us. Well, 
we can, by looking at species living today and looking at their genetic diversity, we can actually extrapolate backwards in time to how diverse they were at certain periods in their evolutionary history. Not all the time, but sometimes. And we also have a very good uh, paleoclimate record. We know approximately what temperatures were, um, what uh, oxygen and CO2 levels were, what sea levels were. And so we can look at phases where a particular environment might not have been um, as uh, conducive for a species, and we can see these signatures in their genomes going back in time that at that last glacial maximum, this species was reduced dramatically in numbers. And at the one before then, we can sometimes see these signatures in their genome. So we can see in the past, major climatic changes have dramatically affected species diversity, and the past is the key to the present. And so- sure. If climate shifts, we can, you know, assume that we're going to see similar changes in different species in the future. So it's a great modeling technique. And there are some species that are already very reduced in numbers, and those are going to be the ones that are going to be particularly affected by climate change, like probably half of the primates. Oh, I would oh. say at least a half yeah. of the uh, primates. But of course, that it's one. very difficult to disentangle that effect from other more direct uh, effects that human beings are having on the other uh, animals with which they share uh, the globe. Uh, what's interesting uh, to me particularly about this, 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 this question, apart from the, uh, the fact that you know, Todd has just implied that uh, a response, one response to, uh, to climate change might be a very major reduction in human population, which would not be something that the people affected or their descendants <laughs> would want to uh, to look forward to. Um, but what it interests me about uh, this this story is the what the archaeological record tells us about how people have handled this kind of thing in the past. And if you look back at the archaeological record, you find that really innovation was a very rare. And sporadic things, and we know that the, uh, the 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 climate was changing quite regularly, and yet they uh, the people would use or the proto people, whatever you want to call them, uh, would be using basically the same kind of stone tool for a million years, even as you know everything changed around them, and they seem to have been adapting old tools to new purposes as climates changed and environments changed and the exigencies upon them changed. Um, and now we're in a very experimental time because only a few tens of thousands of years ago, humans stopped reacting to change in this way, finding new ways to use what they already had. They started inventing new kind of ways of dealing with them, with new exigencies. And that has just snowballed. So now that change has become the norm instead of being something very, very rare. And... Part of this change is, in fact, this enormous amount of, uh, of, uh, of uh, greenhouse gas and so on that we're producing. And we are no longer dealing with things in the way that our ancestors used to deal with them. We have got no track record. We've got nothing to learn from in the past. We only have the present to look around at and, and, and to react to. And uh, as far as I'm aware, there's only one ironclad law of human experience, <laughs> and that is the law of unintended consequences. Oh, yeah. And that's the one we have to look out for in this <laughs> yep. situation. 
Yeah. Well, I just, I mean, even in terms of in, like invasive species and things of that sort, like we're going to solve one problem. Let's bring cane toads to Australia to wipe out all the locusts. And what do you get? <laughs> Locust fly, cane toad, and stoat. Now you got a cane toad problem. Uh, so basically, we've learned that you know necessity, necessity is the mother of invention. And, and right now, we're forced with having to invent a lot of ways to get us out of this hole we've created for ourselves. So wait, people have been around for millions of years. Like the way that we are to, well, not, mm. not really, no, but the, the, we've only been invent, inventing for 10,000 years. Is that, the, well, we that have right? been around, our species has been around for about 200,000 years. 200, and, it's, okay. and it's despite what you might have read uh, lately <laughs> about it, species, <laughs> we'll be talking about that as we know it. Um, <laughs> it's really only been around a couple of thousand years, as far as we know. And it only started behaving in this very strange way that we see less than 100,000 years ago. So huh. by a few tens of thousands of years ago, I'm, I'm talking 50, 60,000 years, which is really an eye blink mm -hmm. in a 7 million year evolutionary history. Wow. Yeah. But it, the, the pace of innovation has just dramatically yeah. since then yeah. picked up. And hopefully we can use that human spark to figure out, you know, we do have renewable techniques. We might be able to sequester carbon. We might be able to do geoengineering, but it's going to take a will to, those are long, long-term investments, something your average uh, stockholder isn't interested, isn't interested in. No, and that's mm. the thing that I think is, is, is important to drive home to, to those that are wondering what's going to happen to their their bank accounts and their paychecks is, sure, it might suffer in the short term, but in the long run, this is something that it's going to save future generations and, you know, and also can turn things around. And I think there are enough brilliant people out there that have answers that if they were given the means to do something could really turn this around. And I, I hope that that is what continues to happen. And, and of course, like I think this push for science and how science has become completely, it should never become in vogue, but it has become in vogue. And I hope that it continues to stay that way and, and people will, will want to contribute financially. <laughs> to those climate scientists. Uh, I also want to talk, well, actually, we should probably take a cosmic query. I feel like a cosmic query is coming on. Yeah. All yeah. Right. Let's, I have another one that I loved here. Um, uh, wondering about, uh, so this is from Alistair Gray, and he was asking, uh, he wanted to know about the uh, ocean acidification and, and its influence on the actual physical size of ocean life uh, and uh, given the reduction of oxygen levels uh, in the ocean. The actual uh, effect on size, um, I'm not sure uh, how the, uh, the, the oxygen levels themselves are, um, are going to, uh, to have this kind of effect. What we do know is that uh, the, uh, the many, many microorganisms, particularly in, in the sea, and some larger organisms also, that, that depend on, on forming carbonate skeletons are having a hard time maintaining those skeletons mm -hmm. uh, with the more acidic seas because uh, calcium carbonate, which is the basic substance of which those skeletons and structures are formed, is, uh, is uh, it's soluble in very, uh, very weak um, acid. So even if you get even a little bit of ocean acidification, and then you add ocean warming to that, which is basically upsetting the whole balance of what's going on in the oceans, there's a huge knock-on effect on uh, marine life. So wait, so there's, so there's animals that are literally like trying to like form their shell, and they simply can't because 
That's right. That's, that's right. The, uh, the if if you're a, if you're an animal that, uh, that that lives in a shell, even if it's a little tiny microscopic animal, one cell, um, and it depends on forming a test, uh, and those tests become thinner and more brittle because they can't uh, maintain them with all the acid around. Uh, that is a very uh, severe consequence. Mm, and those are a huge component of the food chain. So that's yeah. going to have knock-on effects all the way up. The trophic cascade just all mm. kind of trickles down. Um, wow. Yeah, that's it's like soft-shell crabs for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Yeah, it does sound delicious. but Yeah, yeah. but uh, not, not for the crab. <laughs> no. Oy vey. Yeah. Uh, any other good? Yeah. The, so another one. Um, all right. So why... Uh, do we know why avians uh, survived mass extinction 66 million years ago, uh, while other dinosaurs and other animals uh, did, of similar or similar or even smaller sizes didn't? That's from Gavin Mitten on oh, Facebook, sorry. by sorry. the way. No, no, sorry, no, 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 don't worry. No. <laughs> well, it's, it's a very wonderful question because only a few um, uh, of the, 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 the major groups of animals really came, uh, came through that enormous event at the end of the Cretaceous period about 66 and a half million years ago when there was simultaneously uh, there was apparently very high active uh, flood uh, flood volcanism hmm. uh, going on and while all this was going on there was a huge uh, 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 media impact a huge bolide uh, impact and uh, had a very very severe consequences in the uh, in, in terms of affecting all life on Earth, and, uh, and a very large percentage of, certainly at the species level, mm. um, which is very hard for us to look at from this range, but uh, I mean that the effect was really, really, really se uh, severe. And only a few groups, uh, major groups, um, happen to make it through. And um, why um, exactly the, uh, the avians got through uh, that did, I'm, I'm not in a position uh, to, to answer for. I mean, are there things like, uh, you know, it's quite obvious why crocodiles and alligators uh, made it through, for example, because they uh, they do burrow in in riverbanks, which would have protected them somewhat, and they can go for a year without eating anything, and they can live Jesus. during a volcanic winter or a, an impact winter on uh, on 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 the offal, you know. So uh, so it's it's those very either animals that were leading a sheltered life that that where some individuals were not exposed to the immediate effects of the uh, meteorite impact and animals that were able to cope with this uh, volcanic winter that, uh, that transpired after the impact. Well, another thing that may have had an impact is, and the volcanic winters and those things probably helped spread this, is we saw a major transition in the types of plant life at the time to the flowering plants, and flowering mm -hmm. plants have seeds and fruits and things like that. So if you think of the little mammals scurrying around the undergrowth and birds, both of whom are major consumers of, of the the product of flowering plants. Um, they might have just had just enough to eke it through. And then as that world changed for the better, um, after the immediate impact, they were well suited and their competitors were gone. Yeah, no, it, it helps. I mean, dietist plays a huge role in what survives and what dies out. You know, carnivores have it rough if, you know, because that 
again that darn trophic cas- cascade. Uh, but we're actually done with this portion of the show. So uh, please stay tuned. And we're going to be talking more about climate change and how it's affecting current species right now, right here. Hi, welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, Natalia Reagan, and I'm here with my comedian co host extraordinaire, Tim Alexander, and Dr. Todd Disitel, a biological anthropologist at New York University, and Dr. Ian Tattersall, a paleoanthropologist at the American Museum of Natural History. Today we're talking about climate change, which is not the most joyous subject. <laughs> we're trying to eke some fun out of this subject because, you know, why not? Uh, and what we want to talk right now about uh, actual other species other than humans that are currently being affected and and one of us here at the table actually has a lemur uh named for them uh or shafaka uh the uh prop- oh my god propithecus oh my god it's called the golden crown shifaka yes but what's the actual scientific name i just totally butchered I'm, it i i oh what well, Propic- I'm, I'm i'm far too uh too 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 uh, uh modest to uh, to say that <laughs> propithecus Tattersali, Tattersali, right? You got it. Propithecus Tattersali. I'm so sorry. I I Mm -hmm. I was going to get it the first time, but I want to talk to you about the discovery, but also how uh, this particular shafaka is being affected by climate change. Well, this is a a glorious animal. It's about the size of a very big cat, and it has very long legs and uh, and wonderful, wonderful eyes that look at you very uh, quizzically. And it lives in the north of Madagascar. Uh, very close to the northern tip. And it's an area where there's not much forest. Lemurs are forest-living animals. Lemurs really uh, require trees to survive. And this is an area where there are not many trees left. And this is a population that's holding on in some forest remnants. And the more remnant the forest is, the more vulnerable it becomes to to all sorts of things. Um, Drying is going to affect the the forest very badly. Hotter temperatures are going to change the uh, the aspect of the forest and freak weather. You know, unexpected extreme weather is going to have a big effect. And there was a huge cyclone last year that whacked the uh, east coast of Madagascar, Ouch. just south of where these animals are. It did a terrible amount of um, of damage to the forest along the ridge along the, along the coastline, and and weather like that could easily uh, affect. Uh, the habitat of these shifakas too. Yeah, and the and and, and interesting about I love shifakas because they just they're the they're the clingers and the leapers and they mm-hmm. basically are essentially tree huggers <laughs> in their own way. Yeah, I highly sales. recommend that you Google what this is because uh, they are first of all gorgeous and you have a, a, a beautiful beautiful animal named for you. Um, I'm I'm very impressed and it does look like it has like a little golden crown. It's it's very attractive. It's kind of like a strawberry blonde lemur, honestly. <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm partial. Um, but let's talk about how other animals um, are being currently affected and how scientists look at uh, ways to conserve them. Like we talked about, you know, population viability. How does how do how do scientists tackle problems of of trying to up the numbers of a certain species? Well, we have to sort of marshal our resources and can only really put them in certain areas. And so one of the things conservation biologists always aim for is to try to have the maximum amount of genetic diversity um, and in within the animals that they're trying to conserve or help, as well as the general biodiversity of the region they're in. The more organisms you have, the more resilient an area is going to be. When you become depauperate, 
in diversity, then you're going to be subject to freak events. And when populations get very small, like a single cyclone, a single drought, or a single forest fire could take out 10, 20, 30% of all the individuals left. Then you got to sleep with your brother. And who wants <laughs> to do that? Nobody wants to do that. Except for in Alabama. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, you went there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Alabama's listening, by the way. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Because <laughs> there are, you know, ways to, to prevent inbreeding. But when I guess when you get down to that level, I mean, even viable offspring have got to be an issue. Yeah, and so there's, you can go to, we do have examples of species that have survived and rebounded from very, very tiny levels. Uh, is it George the turtle, the famous, or tortoise? Oh, the uh, Galapagos tortoise. <laughs> yeah. Well, even, yeah, I, I, even elephant seals I know came back from very, very, I think a majority of elephant seals off on the coast of California are from a very small bottleneck population um, that basically just had a big boom and now they're but everywhere. To, to try to avoid that yeah. happening is always a good thing. And so we can use the tools of genetics and other mm -hmm. things, but also picking our environment. If you only have enough money for ranger patrols for certain parts of certain large areas, you want to sort of allocate those so that animals can get between the different remnants. Yeah, of so corridors, oh. for instance, I, I, so I studied spider monkeys in Panama, and th that was a big problem is they, they were living in essentially islands on a landscape. It was this large territory, but they th these little tiny fragments, and they had no way of getting to other groups. So basically, they had no one to stoop but each other. And that's a problem. <laughs> so you, there's, you know, push to, to have reforestation and little corridors made and even, you know, uh, there's monkey bridges I've seen in different places in, in Central America that allow uh, monkeys to, to cross actual roads. You know, why did the chicken cross the road? Why did the monkey cross the road to go have sex with somebody who's not its brother? I mean, that's basically <laughs> what's happening. And, <laughs> you know, that's, 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 the, movie right, that's there. right there. Uh, yeah, but that's that's it's. You it's, really have it in for your brother. Gosh! Wouldn't it be great if I didn't have a brother? Uh, awkward. Um, no, but I I do think it's uh, yeah. I mean that's that's something that I feel like in conservation you're constantly having to come up with you have to be the you know the necessities of other invention you have to and that's the thing is we're doing a, I think. A, a good enough job trying to help other species, but we just need to do a better job helping ourselves. And I always feel like primate conservation is also a very selfish endeavor because first and foremost, we are primates. And if we're saving them, we're also doing a, a small part to save ourselves. But in, in many areas, they're also like sort of a keystone species in an ecosystem. Sure. And so the health of primate populations actually trickles an umbrella. down and up across the entire um, area. But I, I had mentioned, you know, we need to just increase general biodiversity. And one of the things climate change could do is actually dramatically reduce biodiversity um, by, again, um, having more uniform and higher temperatures across vast regions, which didn't happen didn't happen before, that's going to change things. But also just the production of storms and just mm. unpredictability. Uh, unpredictability is a really bad thing economically and biologically. Sure. Mm -hmm. Interesting, just what we were talking about in the very first segment, the idea that what 
what makes climate change so dangerous for humans is we've built up these sort of infrastructures that um, really make it dangerous when, when we have a, a major weather event like a, a, a Sandy or a Katrina or a cyclone um, or even, you know, things that aren't weather, but like, you know, earthquakes and things like that. We're very, we're very vulnerable uh, in, in America and in, in North America. Uh, but when I think of animals that will, that generally survive uh, massive climate change events, we, we talk about generalists. And um, if we're, if we're going to look at t primate generalists, we've got humans and we've got macaques, mm -hmm. which we were just talking about during the break. And macaques are a species of primate that are like humans are kind of trash compactors. We, they eat, can eat anything, basically almost live anywhere, but they don't have this infrastructure that we have. So for instance, if climate change gets any worse, mm -hmm. I think it really could be like we've talked about in the past, planet of the macaques. <laughs> well, that are raccoons, coyotes, other sort of weed species mm -hmm. um, that the human environment that we've created is very conducive to them and it will become more conducive to yeah. them. But if humans were out of the way, then all bets would, uh, oh, would, gosh. would be off there since this is a, a, a constant presence and there's yeah. no way to, to, uh, to predict what's going to happen in the world uh, with humans in it. Yeah. It's much easier to pre predict what would happen in the world without humans than it is with humans. I just like that, like, during when we were off air for a moment, I, I, I've, I've learned a ton just just sitting here today. But the thing I'm going <laughs> to take away is that macaques are dicks, apparently. That's, like, the oh. big takeaway to that. Uh, and so I, I want to do – I just like to do with some other segment someday about, like, what, are the, what makes them yeah. such dicks? Uh -huh. <laughs> like, but you know what, uh, what, it, what it really is? It's because they're smart. Mm -hmm. You know, we were also talking during the break about other smart animals. Uh, Natalie was talking about capuchins, which can be a bit of a handful at yeah. times Diabitos. as well. And it turns out that the smarter you are, the more obnoxious you are. And that is why Homo sapiens is the most obnoxious animal on the planet. <laughs> Those members of Menza, man, <laughs> uh, obnoxious. You are really smart. <laughs> <laughs> this is interspecific, <laughs> intraspecific. Right. Well, we were just talking about just, you know, like, even like coyotes taking over the, the idea that even hybrids that we're seeing now, like koi wolves and, um, you know, uh, hybrid fish and, and even salamanders in California is a way that animals are trying, you know, it could basically you'll, you'll, you'll have, you'll have sex with pretty much anything that looks close enough to you. And if you can have the viable offspring, what does that mean for the species? Who wins in, in hybridization? Usually the, the offspring. I mean, we, you know, this general concept of hybrid vigor. Yeah. If they're actually fully fertile, mm -hmm. then usually they're combining the best of both best. sides. I mean, you know, I'd predict you got about 2% Neanderthal in you because 40,000 years ago, some of yeah. that happened. Probably. More, more like, yeah, probably even more. <laughs> you should see my dad. <laughs> Sorry, dad. <laughs> But you know the the hybrid thing is if uh, it 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 works one way within species and it works one way between species and as Todd's pointed out, genetic diversity is really really important and any time two strains within a species come together mm -hmm. that that increases the diversity in them both. But if you're different species, if you're no longer reproductively compatible to the degree that's necessary to maintain 
um, the, the the species, then that'll all be wasted effort. I mean, uh, at least the you know the the intermingling part of it is mm. going to be wasted effort. I mean, uh, you might not subjectively think that it was wasted, but evolutionary, it meant something. Okay, Ian, that <laughs> Neanderthal and I were very there close. Right. <laughs> Oog and I had something special. Uh, I did Those read something, and and I, I and I might be getting it wrong, but that they they surmise that when Neanderthals and anatomically modern humans were admixing, it was I think it was the male Neanderthals and the female. Or no, the, yeah, and the female uh, anatomically modern humans did not produce viable offspring, or there was one that was more likely. Well, okay. you know, I, I, I would, I, I would place a private bet, and I have no idea how I would uh, <laughs> prove it to, to win it. But I would suspect that you know the males of uh, of, uh, of of Homo sapiens, and maybe of Neanderthals too, would uh, would mate with practically anything. But I'm pretty sure that those female Neanderthals didn't want much to do with those uh, they had some standards. tropical creatures that came wandering uh, <laughs> over the horizon, I, I would imagine. Buy me dinner first. <laughs> buy, buy me dinner. Catch I want a woolly rhino. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this all reminds <laughs> me of the Jersey Shore. Like, yeah, <laughs> <right>. A lot. <laughs> yeah. So we have time for one last cosmic query. Uh, what we got? All right. So uh, Colton Zabel, another uh, Patreon, uh, asks, <clears throat> it, did he... This is a lot of words, so I'm just going to kind of summarize it here. Uh, But there was news of the discovery of an older uh, Homo sapien. And so he wanted to know just uh, how does that change our uh, our view on how long uh, how long they these we expect these species to live? Do they they live together? Um, What like what are the now that we've there's been news of that? Do you want to comment on that? And then I have a comment. All right. I'll be very quick then. Uh, this uh, new find from uh, from uh, uh, North Africa is it's a wonderful find, but it isn't Homo sapiens. It may be a very close relative of Homo sapiens, but it really does not take our, our, uh, 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 our species back to the 400,000 level that has been claimed. On the other hand, um, it takes some of the behaviors that's, that we might have uh, have associated with Homo sapiens back a bit, so that's very interesting. And I'll talk. And I would argue that it actually doesn't change the story very much, even if we had crossed the threshold from whatever was pre-sapiens to sapiens. Only one population of Homo sapiens within Africa ultimately gave rise to us all. So even if it were, if they were perfectly modern people like ourselves, indistinguishable they didn't leave offspring or so we still trace our ancestry back to 200,000 years. It just means that for a hundred or 200,000 years, there were multiple groups of modern people, but only one further the ultimate ancestor of the people alive today. Today. Okay. Okay. No, no, that's very interesting. I mean, it's again, um, I I feel like the paleoanthro puzzle is just constantly getting filled in and, and sometimes there are dead ends. That happens, but there's some extra pieces. There are extra pieces, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know what to do with that guy. I'm gonna put him over here, and yeah. then missing ones. Yeah, exactly. I think I went on a date with one the other <laughs> night. Okay, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Star Talk All Stars. Thanks to my co-host Tim Alexander. Where can folks find you, Tim? Uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Tim Alexander NYC, and I'm performing at Tyranny's Tavern on the 25th. Awesome. And Dr. Todd Disatel, where can people find you? Oh, I have that Twitter thing too at Todd Disatel. He's pretty funny. You should follow him. And lastly, Dr. Ian Tattersall. Well, I'd advise you to find me in the bookstore with uh, A Natural History of Wine. Please buy it. It's awesome. 
And thank you so much. And remember to stay curious and keep looking up.